You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Well, let's turn our Bibles over to Ecclesiastes. I got kind of a ring up here, guys. I don't know if you... Okay. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Solomon, as we were about halfway through Ecclesiastes, so a little recap. Solomon, who uh, in chapter one in our intro we said was most likely the author of Ecclesiastes and as a king, as a man that God had blessed with incredible wisdom and with incredible wealth. And really, if you just did a speed read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you'd be like, wow, Solomon here is just really trying to find the meaning of life. How many of you think about just, I'd like to be fulfilled? Okay, yeah, most of you. Some of you are like, nah, fulfillment's just overrated. How many of you here, let's, we're going to wake up and be with me tonight. How many of you are like, I really want to be fulfilled? Yeah, I think that's the human experience. Something about that. Now, what fulfills us? And what we reach for to fulfill us. Well, we live in a, a vast world with a vast number of things that could bring meaning and fulfillment to our life. But what Solomon does, it's kind of like an experiment. He, he looks at different parts of life. And as he, he does so, he's... He's looking at what we'll see termed over and over through the book of Ecclesiastes as life under the sun. Another way of saying that would be life down here, leaving God out of the equation. And he just looks at life, all of what is created before us, all that we are allowed to enjoy. And he he just examines that, this man with great wisdom, this man who walked on the earth Next to Jesus Christ, the wisest, the wealthiest. He had within his means the ability to to look at the best that the world could afford any human being with all of the wisdom, with all of the power, with all of the wealth. This guy would amass a lot of stuff. And he he would build amazing things. And as he would look at all of this that was basically afforded to him, he would keep coming to this one conclusion. Man, it's just vanity. It's, it's vanity. Have you ever came to that conclusion, by the way, from just trying to be fulfilled in something from this world and just God's not in that equation? That's Solomon. And so, in, in, in chapter 4, he, he begins to look at specific parts of the world around him. He goes into the courtroom, and, and he goes into the marketplace. He goes into the highway. He goes into the palace. And he's just examining what life is by those that are living on the highway, those that are living in the marketplace, those that are living the interaction within uh, the temple itself. And, and again, just what conclusions he's drawing as he's watching people and, and, and just trying to find what they are looking for, meaning and fulfillment in those particular settings. But as he watches them, he's like, in those settings and from those settings, even in the temple because their hearts weren't right, their focus was wrong. He was like, man, it's just meaningless. It's, it's absolutely you know, not fulfilling because they were careless, careless in their worship, careless in their praying, careless in their commitments to God. And then we noted that a few times throughout this experiment on life, Solomon will, will bring God into the equation. He did that in chapter um, 5, verse 7, where he began to talk about fearing God and, and how important that is. And and, and we talked about this on Sunday and will a little bit more on uh, our coming Sunday as we talked about the fear of the Lord is, um, 
is an awe. It's a reverence for who he is and what he has done and what he said. And it is to revere all of that, who he is, what he's done and what he said, but also to, to obey what he has said, to obey uh, his, his word. Then in the latter part of chapter 5, Solomon, he, he moved from looking at the vanity that is, you know, the conclusion of just its vanity when he looks at these external things. And he, he begins to, to, you know, look at external religion and all of that. But then he kind of circles around again and he begins to talk about vanity that he has seen by those that, like him, amass great wealth and even honor. And uh, that's really the thought that he carries over into chapter 6. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun. And it is common among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but to a foreigner he consumes it. And, and Solomon again concludes, this is vanity and it is an evil affliction. Now, there's no doubt that Solomon, being a wealthy man himself, would find himself surrounded by a lot of other you know, wealthy people. He sees that they are not lacking. He sees that they, they have it all, all that they would desire, much like him. He sees their wealth and he sees their honor or just a good reputation that many of them have that's associated with that. And he realizes that no one can really acquire these things unless God permits them to do so. But as he looks around at the wealthy, he also sees something very tragic, something tragic that surfaces. It's, again, the, the, the tragedy of having it all, having all of the resources excuse me, for a satisfying life, and yet not being able to enjoy them for one reason or another. There's been more than one person who has worked hard and looked forward to the fruit of their labor, to a comfortable maybe retirement, um, only to have maybe a, a life-altering event keep them from enjoying what they have amassed, and, and someone enjoys it instead of them. Maybe it's an unexpected death. Maybe it's serious illness, whatever the case may be. Some scholars, they, they take these first couple of verses, and they suggest that Solomon is saying, listen, God does not give him power to eat of it. The, another consumes it. That's vanity, and it's an evil affliction. And they're saying this is all connected to, again, life under the sun. They say that Solomon's restating his reoccurring principle that no one can truly enjoy even the gifts of God apart from God who gives the gifts. To enjoy the gifts without the gift giver, the Bible would call that idolatry. And this can never satisfy the human heart. Enjoyment without God is merely entertainment, entertainment that does not satisfy. But enjoyment with God is enrichment. It brings true fulfillment. It brings true satisfaction. Today, there are many who have all that they need. I would say that most of us here in this room would be in that category. We have all that we need to enjoy life. We have all that we would need to be fulfilled in life, especially as we would compare our life to the rest of the world. Amen? Southern California Americans? Yes. But um, oftentimes we might not, or we might have everything that the world would look at and say, man, that, that should be fulfilling them. What we have living out here in America, the average world would look at us and say, you know, that, that should fulfill you. That's something that should 
help you enjoy life. But we see a lot of people today that have everything that most of the world would say would cause a person to enjoy life, but many of those people are, in fact, not enjoying life. And maybe it's because of, of trouble in their life, trouble in their marriage, or, or you know, because that, how many of you guys know that trouble in your marriage could keep you from enjoying life, no matter how much stuff you have, right? <laughs> Leave that alone. Maybe it's trouble in the family. I have been able to, to, to sit down, pray with, and minister to, to many families who have a, a nice home, have nice jobs, have everything that you would look at from a surface and say, man, they should, they should be enjoying life, but they are not enjoying life because of just trouble in their family. And for others, they might have it all, but not be enjoying life because their relationship with God is not what it should be. Maybe they're not enjoying life because of that. Good advice for all of us. Just some practical things. I was kind of pinning things down as I was looking at this. Number one, simply, if you want to be fulfilled in life, make sure that your relationship with God, listen, is what he has designed it to be. I don't know where you're at on your faith journey, but that's a, that's a good thing to do with the relationships that you really value and the relationships that you really need, the relationships that are significant and are part of your life. It's important, whether it's with your wife, your kids, whatever, to sometimes sit down and to take inventory and just to really, you know, to, to make sure that relationship is what it's designed to be. And, and begin with God. Look at your relationship with God as a believer. I don't want to get into all of what that should be, but begin with the fact that maybe you're here listening online and maybe you're not a child of God. Maybe you haven't given your life to God. I would say that is, that is a very wise thing to do, and I think we have a room of people that would agree with that. Amen. Just, you know, give your life to Jesus Christ. And, and, and the, the, his desire and his design... Is, is something that, you know, he, he wants to do in, in a heart that will humble themselves to him and, and receive him and receive what he came to offer mankind in that cross. But that's the beginning point. That's where the relationship begins. He also desires that that relationship would grow and that it would become what he has designed children of God to be in the family of God. And he doesn't force any of this on any of us. And that's where, where lordship begins. He definitely, in our relationship, wants to be our savior. That's, that's huge. And, and, and he, he obviously saved us with the purpose in mind that he would become our Lord. And sometimes I just have to, you know, look at my life, look at my relationship with the Lord and kind of go, <laughs> you know, is, is lordship present in these areas of my life? So I would just say, just I know it sounds a little maybe oversimplistic, but make sure our relationship with God is what he's designed it to be. And if you're married, I would, I'd really think long and hard about what, what God has designed marriage to be, and I wouldn't settle for anything less. Amen. Whatever your role is as a husband or a wife, I would, I would just dig into that, and I would say, I am going to be the best that on the planet. I would say if you have children, grandchildren, as I'm about to have, I would, I, I would just, I would make sure as a parent that my children and their relationship is everything that God has designed it to be. I do everything in my power to make sure that my children, grandchildren, if you're here and you have great grandchildren, hats off to you, God bless you, but I'd make sure that'd be a, a passion of my life. I know that would be part of God's plan for my life, the relationship between my children and my grandchildren and God. And then I would say this, build some friendships with people and families that are committed to those same things. Then, because we're talking about how do I find meaning and fulfillment in life? It's just some practical stuff. Then I would take inventory 
on what God has entrusted to me, and I would thank him. And you might even want to, I don't know, get in the garage. But just really think through what God has entrusted to you and thank him. And when you get to that point, I would, I would say then next, ask him how he would desire you to use those resources and enjoy what he has entrusted to you in the now. A lot of people aren't enjoying life, and they're not enjoying the resources that God has entrusted into their life because they see those resources as theirs. Rather than being a good steward of something, those resources begin to own them and dictate what life will be to them. So just sit down before the Lord and be thinking about what he's entrusted to you and and be thankful for that. And then just say, Lord, how should I use these resources? They're yours. You're the Lord. I'm to be a good steward of what you've entrusted to me. What does your word have to say about, you know, from the, the, the money that I have to the possessions that I have? How would you desire for me to use them? This is where you're going to find true meaning and true fulfillment in life as a Christian. The goal is to be satisfied with what he gives us and to use it for his glory. There's no reason we cannot do this and start enjoying life now. The life that will be most enjoyed will be the life that is lived out in the center of God's will for his glory. The life that is most secure is the life that is lived out in the center of God's will. A lot of people think more money is more security. Money can never provide a sense of security because money is not secure in this world. It can be as quickly lost as it was quickly gained. Verse 3. If a man begets a hundred children. Now, listen, this is, this is a hypothetical, Okay. It's going to set you guys at ease, especially you women. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness or indeed has no burial, I, I, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness. And its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years, twice, that's two thousand years, but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place. So again, you know, Solomon giving us this hypothetical, of course, nobody... It's going to live 2,000 years, and and no monogamous marriage is going to produce 100 children. Thank God. Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, um, he'll have 88 children, but um, he had 18 wives and 16 concubines. He was a chip off the old rock, uh, just like his dad. But um, uh, the Bible does not recommend that, okay? It speaks... Strongly against that, and I think any logical person would say that is not a wise way to go. But, but Solomon is exaggerating this uh, in order to make a point. And his point is that no matter how much you possess, if you don't possess the power to enjoy it, it's like you might as well just not have been even born. That's what he's saying. The man that he presents here, he has abundant resources. He has a a, a large family. He has long life, all of which even modern society today would be the ultimate goal, the ultimate fulfillment and whatnot. But even to the Jews in Old Testament days, this was a picture of of, of wealth. It was a a picture being favored by God and whatnot. But although he had everything that we would expect to satisfy any of us, This man was not satisfied. He did not enjoy his life. It says his soul 
is not satisfied with, with goodness, with the wealth, the large family, longevity. None of that satisfied him. And, and, and indeed, he has no burial. And this gives us a little bit of insight into the quality of his family life. When he died, he was not lamented. When he died, his family wasn't there. They didn't love this guy. It's a, it's a picture of the family that, that only stayed around for the money. You know, uh, the, the, no shows at the funeral, but, you know, front row seat kind of family people when it was time to read the will. If you looked at this guy's bank account, you would say he's rich. But if you looked into his family life, the quality of his family life, you would say, man, this rich man is very poor. So Solomon concludes, no matter how much we possess, if you don't possess the power to enjoy it, again, you might as well as not have even been born. I say a stillborn child is better than he, for again, it comes in vanity and departs in, in, in darkness. Now, some would rightfully argue that existence is better than non-existence and difficult life is better than no life at all. Solomon, um, in a different part in chapter 9, verse 4, he would, he would line up with that as well. He would, he would say, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. But his focus here is really was, was not whether existence is better than non-existence, but his focus was on whether there is any purpose behind living life under the sun, living life, trying to find fulfillment in life down here, leaving God, but leaving God out of the equation. Because when we do that, we deprive ourselves of the ability to enjoy life. The ability to enjoy life comes from within. It's, it's, it's a matter of character, who we are in our relationship with God. It's not a matter of circumstances on the outside. It's a matter of bringing you know, Christ into the equation, as we talked about, inviting him to be our Savior and then recognizing him and following him as our Lord. This is what Paul would write in, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, a familiar verse. I've learned in whatever state that I am in, there, whatever state I am, to be content. And the Greek word there for content, it's an interesting word, um, autocharis, and it, 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 it speaks of the idea of being self-contained. It, it's to be adequate. It's like I'm self-contained and I need nothing from the outside. Paul carried within all of the resources that he needed to say, look it, I'm content. That's why I would say in the, in the following verses in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Another good verse, Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, where the writer of Hebrews says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he... Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. So what can man do to me? So let your, as, as believers, we're not to be covetous. And the, the idea behind that in the, the Greek, again, is a, is a love for money. But it can also be applied to love for the things that money could Goodbye. It's the desire for more, whether we need it or not. It's, it's covetousness is, is, is when the accumulation of money and material things becomes the master passion of our life. It's going to have more. So the writer of Hebrews is like, look at as Christians, our conduct needs to be without that. Keep your lives free from the love of money or free from loving, you know, the things that money can buy. And that's a challenge to this world that we live in, even to, to our own makeup. You see, the world points to the advantages of wealth. But the Bible, it points to the disadvantages of wealth. It is difficult to have it, and, 
and not trust in it. That's what the Bible really shows. Jesus said in Mark 4.19, the deceitfulness of riches or wealth and the desire for other things, they, they come in and they choke out the word of God. So the writer of Hebrews, be content, again, with such things as you have. And again, it's on the inside. It cannot come from material things, for they can never satisfy the heart. Only God can satisfy the heart. Our contentment, listen, Christian, our contentment and our sufficiency derives from God. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is valuable. This is real value here. <laughs> Second Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Our contentment as Christians is not based on self-sufficiency, what I supply. It's not based on worldly sufficiency, what the world supplies. Our contentment is based on our the sufficiency that provides God provides alone. A couple years back, we read Paul Tripp's book on just living in awe of God, and I have a quote here on that. It says, the more you lose sight, of the centrality of God's awesome presence and grandeur, the more you will focus on yourself. And the more you focus on yourself, the more you will focus on your wants and your needs and your dreams and your desires and your hopes and your goals, expectations and feelings. And the more you focus on these things, the more you will define the love of God by his willingness to deliver them. And as God continues to deliver what he's promised, does not give you what you want, you'll begin to doubt his goodness and his love. And when you do that, you cease from trusting him and going to him for help. Great insight. So the value of finding contentment with God, bringing God into our life. You know, last, um, last Wednesday, Pastor Jim from Kansas City was sharing, and he, he Bore his heart. He talked about how he and Lo are going through so much. He had to go home the next day because their oldest son, Chris, and daughter-in-law, Katie, had given birth to little Cecilia, who was born with half a heart. And, um, and he basically was going home to, to stand with them as the doctors would give them um, information as to even any options of her survival called me a, a day later and he says, you know, it's, it's not looking good. They're doing one more test and if this test doesn't come back with a little bit of hope, then there is no hope for Cecilia. She'll be in the presence of the Lord within a, a day or two. And we, we talked and we wept as just men talked about this. And um, the next morning, he, uh, he texted me in the morning, and he, he said that, actually, it was, it was Monday morning. He said that uh, Cecilia had went home to be and is now with Jesus. And so I um, called him on Monday, and um, he wept. He hurt. And he said, you know, it's natural for us to want our children and our grandchildren to outlive us. It's natural for us to want to see them playing in the backyard and to grow up and to, to, to have a normal life. He goes, it's, it's natural. And he says, when you see something like this, it, it challenges everything you, know, you believe in. And what you believe in is either minimized by it or what you believe in, or it, it, it either overshadows it and it holds you and him and I just began to we wept on the phone and we thanked God that he was so real to us that he could hold you even in these, in these circumstances that's true 
you can have the wealth of this world because all of what we experience in this world, we are experiencing a cursed, fallen world that is subject to illness and death and decay and the second law of thermodynamics. I don't mean to put it all in such a bummer category, but talk to Adam and Eve about it when we get to the other side. Just, it's just the world we live in. And, and to think that you're going to have a hall pass on grief and sorrow and somehow find fulfillment in things that were never designed to fulfill your soul is a lie from the pit of hell. It's just a lie. They call it the American dream. It's the biggest nightmare you could ever buy into. And that's the point that he's making. He's just this wise guy that's just, he's beginning to look around again. He's like, look, it's just not adding up. Not in my life, not in the life of the wealthy people around me. It's just not what the world says it is. So in verse 9, just still on this whole, you know, futility of life without God. All the labor of a man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what more has the wise man than the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Better is, is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Now, in order for Solomon to, to reach, or even God, just to reach the full spectrum of society with this particular point, Solomon brings the poor into the equation. From the rich to the poor, we can look at the full spectrum of life. They both labor to stay alive. It involves food. And we must either produce food or earn money to to buy food. And Solomon's point here is that no matter how it's produced, the soul is not satisfied. The appetite of neither one is fully satisfied. So we kind of, you know, we scratch our heads and we ask the question, well, why does a person eat? I'm sure we might have several different answers around here tonight, but um, number one, self-preservation. <laughs> you don't eat, you're not going to be around. But number two, I think, anybody here eat for enjoyment? I do. Is there anybody here that does not eat for enjoyment? All right, we got one. Uh, pray for me. I'll be in that category someday. I, I eat for the enjoyment of... Food, I enjoy food, and I love what food, when I put food out in front of people, I love what it does to people. I eat for that enjoyment as well. Sometimes I like to just make something and just stick it in front of someone, just watch them. <laughs> but we eat to live. We eat to enjoy life and to add years to our life. But some people are not really living they're existing. And what good is it to add years to my life if I am not adding life to those years? Spiritual life, the abundant life that Jesus Christ gives us. You don't need to be wealthy to get Solomon's point. You don't need to be poor to get Solomon's point. You just need to be a human. Because within the, the human psyche of, of men, rich all the way down to poor, and everyone in between, there's a, a fatal flaw which makes satisfaction utterly impossible without divine assistance. You can fill up your vault with gold, you can fill up your stomach with the finest of foods and be completely unsatisfied. You fill up on foods and funds, and the appetite of the soul will not be filled. And the desires of the heart, they will not be satisfied. That is what ethicists call a, a hedonistic paradox. Hedonistic paradox is the more people pursue pleasure, the more elusive it becomes. Something within drives mankind 
to continue the, the, the fruitless and the draining effort of achieving satisfaction through what this world has to offer. It's just part of the, the DNA of mankind and its fallen nature. The next relationship. Then the next relationship. Then the next relationship. The, the latest food, the latest fad, the latest trend. The next. The next I don't even know what generation they are on the iPhone these days, but the next phone, the next party, the next. But with each new next, there's a new disappointment. And there's the conclusion, there must be more to life than this. Nothing works. Without God in our life, we're going to come up empty. We will come up empty until we do what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 10, 39. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life, listen, for his sake, for my sake, he says, shall find it. Live your life to spare your life or live your life to sacrifice your life. No middle ground. If we protect our own interest, he's like, you're losers. If we die to self and live for his interest, we are going to be winners. We're going to be fulfilled. The real war is on the inside. Verse 8 again. For what more has the wise man than a fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? So again, the contrast here between the rich, wise man, and the poor, you know, prudent man who is walking before the living. In other words, he's trying to better his life. That's the picture there. They, they, they both have insatiable desires that they live for. But if all, again, you're doing is living to satisfy your desires, then the rich, wise man has no advantage over the prudent, poor man trying to better his life. The things that we desire from the world and in the world and of themselves cannot make life richer. God has something greater to live for, and that greater is a person is named Jesus Christ. Better is the sight, in verse 9, of the eyes... Then the, the wandering of the desire, the sight of the eyes means it's referring to the enjoyment of the present. That, that which lies before me right now, I just got to have it, I desire that. Then the, the, the wandering of the desire, um, that's speaking of the soul. The, the desire of the soul refers to the, that restless craving for what is distant. It's kind of unseen and uncertain and out of reach. This also, Solomon says, is vanity and grasping for the wind. And Solomon's basically saying, listen, what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. And the reason for this is that our, our constantly longing for more and more is futile. It's meaningless. It's vanity. It's just like chasing after the wind. And then he begins to wind this down in verse 10. He says, whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man. And he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for a man in life? All the days of his life, or all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? So again, Solomon, looking at life under the sun, everything this world has to afford without God in the equation, he, he, he winds this chapter down really just by asking some questions, questions with really, well, he's not giving any answer. We can, we can ponder upon those answers, but he really doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't give us these answers. And that's much of what you know, Solomon does throughout the the book of Ecclesiastes, but we, we are inquisitive. We, we want to know some, some of life's difficult questions answered because we think in getting those particular questions answered, they are going to lead us to being fulfilled and we're going to find meaning in life. You know,
As Christians, how many of you have come to understand we live upon the promises of God? Yeah, the promises of God. We don't live on explanations. We live on the promises of God. The promises of God. Just what he says and what he can do. That's where meaning and fulfillment is found, obeying that, lining my life up with that. And then there's, there's just some, some things that we, we think that if I could just ask this question and I can get this, this answer, and oftentimes we're looking for an answer that we believe will bring fulfillment and meaning to our life. And I, I remember when I, I've only broke a couple of bones, so for you that have broke a lot of bones, I feel sorry for you because the ones I broke I did not like. One was a toe, I talked about that recently. But I, I, I remember, you know, I, I was getting ready to go to Japan, I broke that toe, and I just want to know before I went to Japan, is it broke? I just, there's just something about getting on the plane and all that and everything. I need to know, is it broke? Is it not broke? You know, what's the deal? Is it broke? And, and I remember, I went to the, the, the hospital. I was in a hurry. I just a day. And, and I remember the x-ray thing. And I remember the guy coming out, the doctor coming out. And I was like, first there was a nurse guy there. Who was took, And I go, I need to know, is it broke? He goes, no, I'm not the guy to tell you that. I got to bring the doctor in. And the doctor comes, I need to know, is it broke? And the doctor just looks at me and goes, yeah, it's broken two places. You know, when he said that, I got the answer. My toe still hurt. <laughs> it hurts right now when I talk about it. It hurts when it gets cold outside. <laughs> but what did help is, is the doctor, he, he's like, look, this is what you need to do. The x-ray didn't heal my toe. But my putting faith and obeying what the doctor told me to do led to the healing of my toe. So there's just going to be some questions in life. We're going to ask. Solomon's here. He's a smart guy. <laughs> and, and really, he, he starts to you know, break this down. And he's like, you know, verse 10, we'll just kind of summarize this. But, you know, whatever one has, he has been named already. For it is known that he is a man and he cannot contend with him. Who is mightier than he? You know, the idea is he goes, okay, now, now God's made everything. He's, he's named everything. You know, no one's going to change those designations. He called light, light, and we still call it light. He called day, day, and we still call it day. He called Adam, the man Adam, and we still call man, man. That's the, that's the idea. Nobody's going to change that. And, and, and it's almost as if Solomon's like saying, well, since what's going to be is going to be, you know, why bother to make decisions? And, and it's, it's all kind of predestined anyway, but that's not the way to look at life. We're not robots. We're not living in some prison and, and is forced to act a certain way. Certainly God can accomplish his divine purposes with or without our cooperation, but he basically invites us to, to, to work with him. And when we cooperate with God and we accept you know, all that he has spoken to existence. I, I, I can say the sun is what God called the sun to be, and I believe it's just that. It's not something to be worshipped. It's, it's, it's just a created star in our sky that, that does some amazing things, gives us good tan and whatnot, and that, you know, allows life to be un, lived out on the earth. When I, when I, I line up my life, I might have all kinds of questions about, you know, different societies and different cultures and what they have deemed marriage to be. I might have questions about that. I, I, you know, the times we've been in Africa and these guys are getting saved and we're like, yeah, great, this is great. God's going to do some amazing things in your marriage. And they're like, well, which wife do I keep? I'm like, oh, man. I'm just so glad that I can go back to what God called marriage to be. And now you go figure that out. You're the one that had to marry 15 women. I don't know. That's not my problem. You know, how many mother-in-laws do you have to talk to with that whole deal anyway? It's a bad deal. But, but as it relates to, to my identity, who I am as a man, I'm not confused about that. I go back to what the Bible says, and I rest in what God called man to be. As I see what God had called a woman to be, I rest in that. Today, society is completely confused and radically unfulfilled because they're questioning these things that God put into existence. 
You're going to be completely, radically unfulfilled if you begin to worship the sun as deity because it is not deity. It was created by deity. And this is where he's going. Verse 11, he's like, since there are many things in the, the, the Hebrew, there are words that increase vanity. How is man the better? And so what do we accomplish with all these words, you know, just, just talking about all of this, solve all of our problems and bring fulfillment and whatnot? Not really. Not until we, we line our words up with the word of God. Then verse 12, who knows what is good for a man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a, a shadow. And then the, the kind of simple questions, really, when you think about it, he's, he's saying, who knows what is good for us? Anybody got an answer to that? God. God. Now, now, we can believe that and not live that. I can, I can believe that and, and not bring God into the next decision in my life. A wise person will seek God and search that out. God, what is good for my life? And then who, who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Does, does, it, does anybody know what's coming next after this whole death thing in heaven and down here on earth? Come on. God does. God, God's listening. Does, he, does God know what's happening now? Yeah. Right, Deb? Yeah. He knows exactly what's happening with those that have graduated and have ceased their time on this earth and are continuing that in eternal realm. He knows exactly what's happening. not catching God by surprise. We turn to him as it relates to our future. Not an astrologer or some fortune teller. Nobody knows the future except God. It's futile to speculate. You'd be empty. If you're one of these people that are like, I need to know what's going on in the future. I need to, and you're, you're looking to something other than God's word. You are going to be unfulfilled and, and, and confused and empty. And this is the theme of Ecclesiastes. Trying to live life with God out of the equation, meaningless, unfulfilling, empty. Bring God into the equation, it's meaningful, it's fulfilling. And, and it's anything but empty, amen? So, Father, thank you again for our time. We can just settle in yet another Wednesday night in an amazing property that you've called your own. I thank you for these who come out and say they need more, like myself, like Lore. Hungry hearts. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for um, well being here in our, in our worship and uh, being our teacher, just opening our hearts and planting the truth of your word in the areas of our heart that um, we, so, we so need this. Lord, we, we also just are mindful of the Stewart family with Jim and Lo and Chris and Katie. We just pray you continue to bring them peace and, and comfort, man. <sighs> Tomorrow morning, as, as June and, and Annie... We'll uh, take little baby Meg, six-month-old baby Meg, into the hospital for open-heart surgery. We pray for them, little Meg. Lord, you'd just do a miracle on that little girl. We just want to see her running around here and getting in our way. So give her, just have your hand on those surgeons, man. Heal her up quickly. And um, as June was saying, man, he just needs peace. Give that boy peace. Any peace. Tomorrow's we'll meet here in this same room. We're just hanging out with the retired guys and going through the life of David. Lord, meet us here. Tomorrow night, San Clemente with a bunch of guys that are gathering around that same book and just saying, we want to go deeper. We pray you'd meet us there as well. With the women on, on Saturdays, they'll gather for their Christmas tea. Man, may it, may it not be an event. <laughs> may it be an encounter.
with Jesus Christ. Sunday morning, as we lean in and, and just finish off a few things you put on our heart, um, just regarding this world we're living in, the test, the opposition from the non-believing world against, well, believers, unrighteousness against that which is righteous. And we're just talking about our part in that, our role in that, and a proper response to that. And we talked about the importance of wisdom and how wisdom is gentle. As we begin to just finish that out on Sunday, man, just speak to us. Give us wisdom. What to know and what to say and how to act so we can be effective in advancing your kingdom in a world that is pretty much against it. Pray for our nation as... Uh, so much is happening in D.C. and on Capitol Hill right now with this, um, just this desire to see um, our president impeached. None of us really know all the details. We might want to pretend that we've listened to more than the others, but um, we, we turn to you right now on behalf of our, our nation, our president, our government, Lord, and, and we are we are just divided. I'm sure this grieves your heart. And um, this, is, this is not what leaders become and governments become that are leaning and trusting on you. Um, and so we just pray that, uh, we pray for our nation. We pray for this, this whole thing that somehow you would be brought into the equation, that you would grab a hold of the hearts of men. And, and we do pray for our president, his family, and um, Lord, just that, that, that you would have your hand on him and, and, and just on that office and how important that office is, not just to our nation, but to this world. And, and we, just, we just turn to you as, a, as just a bunch of your kids right now and say, Lord, help America. We need your help. We pray for Israel right now as they're just trying to work out a, a peace thing with these folks in Gaza that are um, extremist and just... Uh, really wanting to wipe uh, Israel off the map, and there's just uh, so much hostility and, and hatred in that region. We pray for peace in that region. We pray, pray that you'd bless your people there, protect them there, Lord. And we've got several of our kids over there in Bible school, and Ruth and Yuval, and I know Jason and his mom are over there, and, and we just pray for protection on all of them as all this madness, these missiles and whatnot is... is uh, happening. And, and Lord, as we are living in, in trouble sometimes, may we have a calm heart. We have peace. May we be able to walk our children through just the reality of this world and be able to help them identify it as to its source, the problems and the fall and sin, and, and be clear with the word and the hope that we have as being children of God and to be uh, placed on a path where you are our protection, where you are our shield, where you are our buckler, you, you are uh, the one that goes before us. And um, if God, you are before us, who can be against us? And so bless these people are here, Lord. Bless our families, our wives. I know some might be here where they're like, man, I, I wish my, my spouse was saved. Or I wish my spouse was walking with the Lord might have prodigals that are just coming to people's minds right now, Lord. We pray for the prodigals, those kids that have walked away from you, Lord. Bring them back, we pray, and give the parents your peace about that. May they see it happen. We love you. Continue to bless your work here, uh, Calvary La Habra. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.